Thank you for joining us on a Morally Podcast with Tony May. Morally Podcast is purpose-built for America. Through our military veterans and military supporters, we show that the values and qualities that built this country, such as service, Welcome to the Ranger for Life, a Morally Podcast, where we share stories of service and sacrifice from America's military community for America. We're excited to announce that all proceeds from Three Nails Clothing Sales using the code RANGER will benefit the Ranger Outreach Center at St. Luke Church in Columbus, Georgia. Three Nails Clothing, pursue your passion. Check out their website, threenailsclothing.com for a full line of activewear. And Friday, September 30th, Atlanta Braves Hall of Fame Hall of Famer and legend Dale Murphy will be at St. Luke Church for a benefit for the Ranger Outreach Center. You can purchase your tickets online thanks to partnership with Gallant Few. Tickets and tables are now available. You can go to the website give.gallantfew.org backslash all-star. And now it's my pleasure to bring on to a Morley podcast, Carl Monger. Carl, it is great to have you here. Thanks, Tony. You are my boss. And that's not why you're we here. We, we do work together. You are the founder of Gallant Few. So we will talk about a military veteran nonprofit. You're an Army Ranger veteran. Three Nails Clothing Sales, using the code RANGER, will benefit the Ranger Outreach Center at St. Luke Church in Columbus, Georgia. Three Nails Clothing, pursue your passion. Check out their website, threenailsclothing.com, for a full line of activewear. And Friday, September 30th, Atlanta Braves Hall of Fame. Hall of Famer and legend Dale Murphy will be at St. Luke Church for a benefit for the Ranger Outreach Center. You can purchase your tickets online thanks to partnership with Gallant Few. Tickets and tables are now available. You can go to the website give.gallantfew.org backslash all-star. And now it's my pleasure to bring on to a Morley podcast, Carl Monger. Carl, it is great to have you here. Thanks, Tony. You are my boss. And that's not why you're we here. Work we, we do work together. You are the founder of Gallant Few. So we will talk about a military veteran nonprofit. You're an Army Ranger veteran from the 1st Imperial Ranger Battalion, First as Miss, Battalion. Miss Sheila Dudley, the <laughs> empress of that battalion, um, tells me about. And you also come from a military family. So let And, and now... You get accepted. Everything's great. God orders. God orders. And, then, and uh, everybody. Everybody goes and jumps into Panama. And then here comes this uh, minted captain, the first Ranger Battalion. Without Who he's pretty hot stuff because you know he's got some good OERs and been recommended. You know, I had a great company. Buck hired this guy. Yeah, Buck hired this guy, and then I walk into. I understand, not 100%, but I understand what a tablet C4 and battalion felt like at that point because I'm an infantry captain walking in without a mustard stain and a CIB and a combat patch. But I was the only one. I was the first non-combat qualified infantry captain to report to the regiment after Panama. And when I went to rope, um, Buck Hernan set us down and, and uh, Kent Schweikert, who uh, he, he and I went through rope together then. He was captain. 
He cannot give an IV. I think I still have scars on my arm from the IVs that he tried to give me. But um, he and I were were there at the same time he stayed at regiment, and then I went first back. But um, they didn't even have airplanes for us to do. So I had jump school in 81, got five jumps when I was in ranger school in 83, and then no jumps for seven years. And then I get to rope, where we go through airborne refresher, but it's all book airborne refresher, like distance learning airborne refresher, because they didn't have any airplanes. Because all the airframes were taking people over, starting to preposition over for Desert Shield. So there were no aircraft for us. And uh, so I get to 1st Ranger Battalion, and I'm there two days. And they're like, hey, you're not active, airborne status. we got to jump tonight, midnight. Time on target, midnight tonight. And so I find myself going through sustained airborne. I, I get rigged up. I'm laying on the tarmac over there by Hunter with, with uh, some of the other staff officers. And, uh, and the LNO was laying next to me, a guy named Morris. And, and he had uh, senior wings. And so, you know, I really don't want to embarrass myself, but I, I looked around and I said, hey, sir, I've never done a night jump. <laughs> because all my jumps were daylight, and now we're going to jump at midnight. So it was awesome. It was, it was amazing. He gave me a little bit of mentoring and told me I'd be fine, and, and I was. And, and it, was, it was an amazing experience. And then, so, I, I, so then what happens is, I'm the one of many assistant S3 captains at 1st Ranger Battalion. And the whole army is gearing up to go to Desert Storm, right? Desert Shield at that time. And so the battalion commander calls me in his office and says, you are going to be the rear detachment commander if we deploy. <laughs> and I'm like, please, no, please, anything but that. I, I want Selfless service, Carl. I, Selfless that, service. That was my mistake. That was my mistake. Was my mistake. <laughs> it would be hard for anyone. Yeah, um, it would be hard was, for anyone. Well, you know, I, I had grown up reading stories about um, the, the proper thing to do was to volunteer and say, no, I you know, don't. One of my favorite books that I even read when I was in middle school was a book called Combat General. It's a little, little uh, paperback pamphlet. And it's a fictional account of a one-star general who rides a desk in the Pentagon uh, during World War II. All of his peers go off to war. And finally, he gets tapped to go into theater of operations. And it is right as the Battle of the Bulge is starting. Mm -hmm. And he walks into a unit that's been demoralized and broken down. And, but he had fought like hell to go because he could have stayed and ridden the desk. And so that, that always went through my mind. So okay, I'm being told to be the rear detachment commander. But. So the next day I went back in, I was like, sir, please, if there's any way, please don't leave me here, right? Which is probably the wrong thing to do. But um, they did go. And I didn't be, I wasn't the rear detachment commander, which was good. But, uh, but they did tap me to be the battalion S1. And so I became the battalion S1 a couple of weeks before Ken Stouse assumed command. And so I was the S1 for Stouse for a year. And then... Uh, moved over to be the assistant S3 for Joe Votel and uh, Jeff Bannock, or I'm sorry, Steve Bannock replaced me as the S1. And so he was the S1 when we had the helicopter crash that killed Ken Stouse and, and uh, 12, 12 total to Ken plus 11. Um, and because Steve Bannock was the one that was running around doing all the coordination and I'd been the prior S1, I got to narrate all of the ceremonies. 
So when we dedicated the Ken Stouse softball field at Hunter M. Yearfield, I was the MC for the ceremony. I mean, it was, oh, it was a horrible, horrible time to go through because everything, you, you always carried this huge lump around in your chest. I mean, it, it, it was, yeah, it was peacetime. But when you lose that many people you're close to that you had trained with and, and laid in the dirt alongside, that affects you in ways I had no idea how I would be affected. And I remember uh, two weeks after the, the crash, just walking around the battalion headquarters in an absolute fog because it was hard to clear the, the sorrow and, and all of that stuff out and try to make sense of what was going to happen going forward. So... And so with that, a traumatic event, it, it affects leadership. Absolutely. And I don't want to downplay that, but for the purpose of this podcast, we really want to kind of tell what you're going through and how it affects and leads to gallant few. So when if you're the S1 at a Ranger Battalion and get got moved to the three shop, that is actually first staff positions, a move up. Because you've been trusted by the commander and luckily mentorship with Joe Votel. So then you hear all is right with the world. No muster stain, no scroll, but you got a company waiting for you. Right. Yeah. So uh, Ken Stouse had written in an OER that I would command B Company 175, replacing Kurt Fuller, uh, who retired as a two-star. Um, he was just inducted into the Hall of Fame yeah, last e week. Everybody that I served with at 175 is in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> um, so I had the privilege when I first got there. Kim Keene was the S3. Um, uh, just the names are Bob Wagner was the first battalion commander. Yeah, great people. Uh, just the hallmark. Just unbelievable, unbelievably talented people that, again, I come from, from Big Army where now everybody else is keeping up with me to Ranger Battalion where now I got to keep up with everybody. Treading water. So it's it's huge because you go through a phase when you first get there that's like, I'm not worthy to be here. I mean, it just, when you see everything else that's going on, you got to get over that quick or you'll get chewed up and spit out, right? But um, the validation that came back as I, as I performed and I got comfortable with my job and then being selected to be the S1 to me was a compliment. Because I could have been the S4. I mean, could, Goodness gracious. God, that didn't happen. That's doing the Lord's work right there. <laughs> That's exactly the right. chaplain in the S4, That's do exactly the Lord's right. work. So I got to be a flesh peddler. But, so it was good because I got to learn more about the, the system, more about the people business, which was incredibly important. And, and Stouse, when he took command, he sat down. One of the first things he did was he got out a piece of paper and he wrote a dozen names on there. And he said, see how many of these officers you can get. Because he wanted to fill out his team. Um, so he told me, uh, in writing, I was going to command a ranger company. Then he was killed. Mick Bednarik was the replacement battalion commander, the interim. He, at that time, was the regimental exo, if I remember right. So Mick comes in and is there for about four months. And while they're trying to decide who's going to be the next, the, the full battalion commander, because Mick had not commanded an infantry battalion yet. Yeah, and I met the prerequisite. Mm -hmm. you, you have to command after battalion before you can command a ranger battalion. So, so he was not qualified yet to do that. He was there long enough to write me an OER. And in the OER, he wrote that I would command a ranger company. The um, permanent battalion commander came in, Mark Pentecost, who also is in the Ranger Hall of Fame. All, all those other guys are in the Ranger Hall of Fame. And um, 
Mark Pentecost had been the battalion XO when I was the S1. And I had an uphill battle from the beginning with him. And I recognized it, starting with the fact that I was the only one that didn't have any combat experience. And the second one was that I had gone in and begged to not be left behind. I really think he didn't like that. And when he wrote me my OER, when I left the S1 to go be the S3, as he was leaving uh, the battalion XO job and I went to be the AS3, he wrote my OER, very positive things, but he told me as he handed it to me, you did better than I thought you were going to, which from him was a huge, huge compliment, right? Yeah, consider the source, right? Huge, it's like, it huge sounds harsh, but... It sounds harsh, but it was a huge compliment. And now he's, he's leaving, and I was not displeased about that. But um, now he's coming back to be the battalion commander. And I knew that I would have to prove myself all over again. And after about four or five months, I, we were a couple of weeks from... Um, change of command, but we had already started making the plans for the inventories and everything. And he called me in his office, me, Joe Botel and, and uh, Mark Pentecost. And, and he said, you're not going to command B company. I'm going to let, I'm going to give that to Jeff Bannister who died on active duty as a two-star general. And Jeff had been the S4, right? So he did the Lord's work. And so now he's being <laughs> rewarded for it. But Jeff, a phenomenal officer. He was a great guy. We're, we're good friends. We remained friends after that. And, and my, the way that I looked at that is Ranger Battalion Commander gets to pick and choose their team. Ken Scout showed me that when he wrote the list out. So You helped him do it. I, I did. And, and so I told Pentecost, I said, well, I understand why. I disagree with your reasons, but I understand why. And uh, it, was, it was something that at its core, I think that I took away from that a feeling that I wasn't good enough. And... So as I, as I left that day and I went home and I talked to my starter wife, who I can call her that because we're friends now. She's a great gal. Um, but she was just as upset at me because she was looking forward to being a company commander's wife again. She had loved doing that on the 25th. She'd been division spouse of the year, got recognized. You know, just it would be a bigger opportunity for her to serve. Absolutely. Generally, Absolutely. there's an expectation that as a leader, enlisted or officer, a spouse, um, will hopefully take a role, right? Generally, yeah. yeah so now we're praying and we're, and we're trying to figure out what it is we want to do. Then I go back into battalion headquarters the next day, and and there's a message book that passes around every morning. In those days, they took all the faxes that came in, and some of them were classified secret, and some were not. And they would put them in this message book that would be it would go from the hierarchy. Battalion commander got it first, and then it would work its way down, and and as the assistant three. I got it maybe an hour after uh, it started making the rounds. And as I'm flipping through there and I see in the S1 section, the Department of the Army had just reopened the window for voluntary separation incentive for captains in year group 83, which was my year group. And I did the quick math and there was a two-week window of opportunity that I had to make the decision in. But it was spread out over 20 years as a $200,000 buyout if I wanted to leave the army. I am thinking in my head, I'm never going to command a battalion because I've got two OERs that say I'm going to command a ranger company and then I don't do it. Well, I'll be lucky if I ever make lieutenant colonel. And, and so I'm thinking, do I really want to go through all this? Then I talked to my DA assignments officer and he says, we'll send you to Korea for a year and then you'll come back and go, go to Leavenworth. And, and I'm like, 
I've been a Ranger Battalion for three years. I don't even know my kids. I'm not going to go to Korea for a year. You know, can you stick me somewhere in Kansas? I'll do ROTC. I'll do anything because Kansas is where my family is now. And I want my kids to be reconnected. And he's like, that's not, no, we can't. That's not going to happen. We can't do that. Uh, I made a career fatal mistake in that I didn't reach out to any of my mentors. I didn't reach out to Dubik. I didn't reach out to Oli because I was embarrassed and ashamed. And, and, you, and you wouldn't ask for help, too, even if probably you knew. And you knew that they had sway. I just that, that wasn't even that wasn't even I in your mindset. I would have said, what should I do? Mm-hmm. And I didn't do it. And that's one of the, you know, when you think back in your life about the things you should have done, that's one of probably my top 10 things that I should have done. However, if I'd done that and stayed in the Army, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. So all, all of these things have, in retrospect, come back to kind of prepare me and place me in a position to do the things that we do now. So, so I dropped the packet and uh, I, I wrote, well, on the 4187, I wrote in the comments, I'm like, don't to the brigade com- or regimental commander, uh, don't try to talk me out of this. I'm not, this is my final decision. I am not changing my mind. And he didn't try to talk me out of it. So uh, Dave Grange was the RCO at the time. I'd gone through two manga dies with him. So I think I, I knew him fairly well. That's, Four-day mini ranger school yes. with all the captains in a battalion. Harder than ranger school Harder. by design. It, it was not an easy, easy event, but but it was it was special. Well, I want to backtrack because when I was the S1, um, we sent a, a small unit led by Kurt Fuller over to Desert Storm, and mm-hmm. they did they did a, a really one of the the only ranger regiment raid right that, that was done. Radio the, tower, correct? Took mm-hmm. out a radio tower. That's right. And, uh, and I was the S1. I put them on the plane, and I welcomed them back after, and I planned their awards ceremony afterwards. And so I was always the almost been there kind of guy. And, well, I'm still the S1, and this is uh, late November, early December of uh, 1991. And I'm in Korea doing the S1 thing where we're going to the DMZ and all of the smaller units there, and we're doing the range regiment pitch. So me and... Um, uh, an officer named Carlson, who I think was 3rd Battalion, S1, uh, and a couple of other officers. I, I think Schweikert was there. I don't remember. I'm pretty sure that he was. And as we're doing all of this stuff and I'm getting ready to come back, I remember going to the airport in Seoul to catch my flight back to Savannah. And one of the LNOs from regiment is coming through the airport as I'm going out. And he says, are you going to get back in time? And I'm like, back in time for what? And he says, your battalion's been alerted. You guys are jumping into Kuwait. And I'm like, when? And he's like, day after tomorrow. So I fly from Korea back to Savannah. Two of the pack NCOs are waiting for me at the airport. Take me home. I dump out the green stuff, put the brown stuff in the duffel bag, go to battalion, get there just in time to get the first briefing go through sustained airborne training, go load up ammo, got on the birds and headed for Kuwait. Uh, we got to, we changed planes in Madrid. This is one of those things that it was credited as a combat mission for the battalion, but you don't read it. It's not in any of the, the official lineages of the battalion, even though we got ultimately got right shoulder scrolls for it. Um, but we did a show force. We did a, 
from Madrid, we did an air flight, an in-flight aerial refueling along the uh, Iraqi-Kuwait border. And then we jumped into Ali Salem airfield. And 450 Rangers jumped. We put about 50 of them in the hospital because the winds were 30-plus knots. It was definitely not a peacetime jump. And then we walked a very long ways into the desert, blew a bunch of stuff up, and then we Shell force. Walked Shell force. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that was, was an incredible privilege to be part of that mission. I've got video, actually, on my YouTube uh, channel. I've got video of Ken Staus, uh, Kurt Fowler, and some of the others. I think Hotel's there, too. They're talking through the operations over a big sand table. And uh, somebody else took the video. I got it years later, and I managed to digitize it and save it. Cobra Gold? No, that's Where's a it? Thailand operation. This was Iris Gold. Iris Gold. Oh, Iris Gold. Okay. There you go. And, and yeah. it is on, on your YouTube channel. And so yeah. what we're hearing overall, just this this confluence of situations where, you know, it's like you're this character in a movie <laughs> who, whether you, something goes right, the audience is just like, oh, poor guy, because it's coming. But you turn that experience, you know, growing up single parent home, you learn lessons that help you excel at ROTC. You take those airborne experiences that help mold yourself. And now you have an organization, Gallant View, that kind of starts with the premise that the majority of veterans don't come into the military, probably because things are great at home. And when they leave, their service may not have ended in all roses. Well, look at the statistics for every 10 soldiers, not soldiers, anybody, because it's uh, service-wide, for every 10 people that join the military, six of them do not re-enlist, which means four do, okay? Four re-enlist, only one of those 10 retires. So what happens to those other three? They re-enlisted, they did their initial term said, yep, this is my career. They re-enlist to stay in, and then they don't. Why is that? Why? Why is that, right? And when you talk to somebody that re-enlisted in the military and didn't retire, typically you find out that they had a, a negative experience of some sort. Maybe somebody died or they got hurt themselves. Um, they may have self-medicated Rather than talk to a counselor, they may have gotten a DUI. Uh, they, something happened. For me, it was at the 10-year mark, mm -hmm. right? That I felt like my career had been, had been cut short or taken away from me or whatever it was. But that created this black cloud, a self-imposed black cloud that I carried with me when I left the military. I did not want to tell someone that I was a ranger because they would want to know why am I not still a ranger, right? Tell me about what was that experience like? Well, my biggest takeaway from that is that a lot of people died and it hurts and I don't want to talk about it and it ruined my army career. So I would say I was an infantry officer and their eyes glaze over, they don't care, they don't want to know what that is because that's not, that's not sexy. It's not so, interesting to them. It's not interesting to them. So, so I would not, I wouldn't talk about that and Further, I wouldn't seek out and talk to other rangers because I felt like I wasn't worthy because I had not maybe met the standards, and that's why I didn't get the company. Um, 
that led me to feel my self-confidence was really, really low. And it took years for me to start building, building it back up. And it got built back up because another veteran reached out and said, you know, you're, you're better than this. Let me help you professionally and personally. I'll encourage you. I'll, I'll coach you. You know, let's, I want you to be successful in business because we worked together. His name's Bill. Um, he said, you can make me successful. I can make you successful. You know, I know what you're capable of. I know the potential that you have. Get out of your own way and I'll help you do that. And so that, that started a great career in, in um, selling and managing construction equipment, construction equipment fleets. The process to get there, though, was really hard because I went from this environment where I, I made notes today in the RSN speech during the change of responsibility ceremony where he talked about um, some of the things that the NCOs and the regiment have done, and that is it, it has to do with setting and enforcing a high standard but being very professional. Um, I think the RCO said something about the RSM about he never walked past a mistake, but he, he used, he demonstrated by leadership, he, he always demanded a higher standard of himself and of others. You, you experience that environment, and then you leave that environment, and you go to the civilian world where nobody gives a crap about standards, where everybody's in it for themselves, and there's very little respect and, and mutual support. And now I've got the fact that I don't feel worthy enough to talk to people that have the high standards that I do and I'm thrown into an environment where people don't and it just makes the whole thing worse and it created a toxic environment for me at work. I hated every day that I went into the job which bled over into my home life. I, I wasn't being a good dad and a good husband because I'm carrying all of this stress and internal animosity um, and, and it took somebody else really reaching out and coming alongside of me to say it doesn't have to be like this. And I'll help you. And and it, it comes full circle because I helped him years later. I don't know if we have time to talk about that today. But every person that's out there, even if it's someone that you're really, really close to, could be going through something and you have no idea about it because they don't want to talk about it. Because it's embarrassing to them. They feel shame because of that. And if they feel shame and they don't want to share it with you for whatever reason... They carry that shame inside of them, and it can take them to the point where they think about taking their own life. And that's what happened with my friend. So when, when somebody starts to withdraw, what I did in this particular instance is I thought it was me again, right? Mm -hmm. he's, he's withdrawing from me because maybe I'm not mean to standard. And it, I know that it went back to my self-confidence levels, right? There's something that I'm doing that's causing him to pull back. The reality was it was all his internal emotions and relationships and things that he was going through that he didn't want to share with anybody else. And, uh, and when I found out that he was going through this incredible period of emotional distress and I called him, I could hear the tension in his voice. And because now I had a little bit of experience with Gallifrey and I'd gone through assist suicide prevention training, I flat out asked him, are you thinking about killing yourself? And for 30 seconds, he didn't say anything. And, and that told me everything. He told me it took him maybe another seven or eight years 
before he told me that when I called him, he was looking around his apartment for the ammunition for his 45. And he couldn't find it because someone else had taken it and hidden it from him. But I had no clue that this was going on when I called him. And, and so it's when, when there's somebody that you're really close to and all of a sudden you're not, something's going on there. That's when you really got to reach out and figure it out. And they're probably feeling guilt and shame about something. Don't want to talk about it. But, the, but that, when you look at that 10, six reenlist, I'm sorry, six don't reenlist. So they go on to whatever they want to do. Most of them are going on to school or whatever. But three of them that don't retire, three of them, got out because of a reason that's probably a negative reason. And that negative reason prevents them from being a part of the community that's important to them. And then they fall back into this community that's people that backstab and don't have high standards and don't care about anybody but themselves. And now there's this huge dichotomy within themselves to, am I this now? Or, you know, I used to be that, but now I wasn't good enough. If something happened, and that, but I'm not really part of that. And that can take them into this isolation phase that ultimately has the potential to be deadly. The, the thing about that is that deadly combination of isolation, of guilt and shame, being separated from the people that carry high standards can make your mind work in ways against you that's more powerful than anything else. The most powerful weapon that a, a warrior has isn't their feet. It's not their arms, right? It's their mind. Biggest muscles, the big, the thing they should be working out the most. That's and right. we use coaches for fitness. Um, we'll read to get smarter. We'll, we'll, we'll listen to other folks. We'll use mentors. But who's challenging your own brain? Yeah. Who's really even qualified to, to evaluate if they've challenged their own brain enough? That's interesting. Yeah, but if that greatest asset that you have, that greatest weapon that you have mm -hmm. turns against you, how do you fight that? You can't do it by yourself. And one of the things that I love about the way that Gallifrey has developed is, so we know that 30% of people that leave the military leave with probably something bad. We know of those, some things bad, that they're going to create guilt and shame. We know that it's going to cause someone to self-medicate. We know it's going to cause them to avoid conversations, probably avoid mental health. And they're going to isolate. So we know all these things are going to happen. Why do we do sustained airborne training? Because somebody had a malfunction and they did something that they survived and they came back and they said, Tony, man, I, I found my opening shock. I'm laying on somebody's canopy. You know what happened? I stood up. I ran off of it. No way. You mean you can run off a parachute? Yes. So guess what? Sustained airborne training. Everybody jog in place because if you land on a parachute, you know, it may not happen to you, but if it does, you can run off. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? If you're one of these 30%, you leave the military, you find yourself isolating. You're not the only one that's ever done that, right? So let's. what's the lessons learned there? What's the AAR? What, what can we do ahead of time to talk about this so that when someone starts to move into that isolation phase, they go, oh, this is like when somebody lands on a parachute, right? I, I've got to do something to get myself out of this or it's going to take me in a direction that's going to make it worse. We don't talk about those things. And we avoid talking about those things. And I think we have to talk about those things because when you do, then people, they can react to that threat that's in front of them if they recognize the threat. If they don't recognize the threat and they just keep going down that path, 
it can be comfortable to be to be blue. It can be uncomfortable to be de- or comfortable to be depressed, and you get used to it, and it just gets worse, and it's a one-way slope. So recognizing it, talking about it, identifying the things that you can do to change it is incredibly important. And I think that's a big part of what we have to do is we've got to talk about it. You know, we do the azimuth check. We have a 20, if you out there haven't taken the azimuth check, go to azimuthcheck.org or Gallifuse website and you can find it there. But go take this 25 statement self-assessment because it asks you to rate your level of fitness emotionally, spiritually, professionally, physically, and socially. And somebody says, what do you mean social fitness? Well, an example of the social fitness statement is um, the only place I go for fun are bars. One's not at all, tens a whole bunch. Uh, I've got a very good friend of mine who works for a very big financial company in the Dallas area, Air Force veteran, who takes the asthma checks, I asked him to, and he gets to that question and he goes, holy cow, I can't think of a place that I go for fun that doesn't involve alcohol. And the next day he stopped drinking. And I'm not saying you got to stop drinking. You know, beer is a staple of life, right? If you use it responsibly. Um, but for him, he realized it, it was a warning sign for him. I'm going down the wrong path. And if I keep going down this path, it's going to get worse. And so he stopped drinking. Six months later, he's lost 40 pounds. His entire outlook has changed. Now he's engaging in activities that are more uplifting than just going to a bar and sitting there and drinking. So something as simple as that can be a life changer. Um, one of the statements in emotional fitness is, I believe life is worth living, one to 10. And if you're a seven out of 10 life worth living, that doesn't mean it's bad. That doesn't mean you're suicidal. But what would it look like if your life was an eight out of 10 or a nine out of 10? What's the difference between those? And can we help you find the resources to move that direction? But if you don't assess it, Every, every good NCO in the military starts off with a training assessment, right? Let me see you do immediate action on your personal weapon. If you can do it, great. If you can't do it, then what do we need to do to teach you how to do that? And you need, you need a baseline. And that's baseline. what your first in this azimuth check process is a process. You do one, you share your, you know, your own evaluation, but then you do it with someone else. And I think what I'd like to do, Carl, so much. I would like to get a second. Let's do another episode and let's talk through Vet Star. Mm-hmm. Let's talk through self-training responsibility. We we've, we've kind of talked about how you've gotten to this place. Let's talk about the licensing to becoming a certified counselor, uh, passing the National Registry, and and where Gallant Few is going and where it's built on. So I, I thank you so much for coming on, and we want to thank you um, for watching. A Morley podcast. I hope you learned a little bit about Carl Monger. There's not a lot of them out there, but there are people that care for our veteran community and look at things through not just your personal experiences, but with scientific approaches to make us better, to save lives and to optimize lives as well. So thank you for joining us for this week's Morley podcast. We will see you next week with another great episode. Until then, as my dad said, Leave it better than you found it. Rangers lead the way. We hope you enjoyed a Morley podcast with Tony May, and we appreciate your viewership. If you'd like to hear more from Tony or one of his guests, you can view or listen to past episodes at tonymain.podbean.com.